This evening, I'd like for you to turn to Leviticus chapter 23. Leviticus chapter 23. We just uh, completed our study in the book of Daniel, and uh, for the last few years, actually, from, uh, gosh, I, I guess going all the way back to maybe before 2010, we've been focusing our attention only because we go through the scriptures, and so we've been going through, we went through the book of Isaiah, uh, the book of Jeremiah, uh, the book of Lamentations, and then we took a, a time to go through the book of Romans while we were going through the book of Genesis, and so we were doing Romans, and then we did Revelation. So we, we did Romans and got back right onto this kind of prophetic track that we have been kind of following over the last few years. And uh, so we, we completed Daniel just uh, uh, last, last time, and, and um, I, I have really had it on my heart to go through the feasts of Israel and, and point out, as we look through those feasts, uh, each one of the seven feasts of Israel that were appointed and designated by God for the Jewish people uh, to celebrate, that within those seven feasts, we see a tremendous prophetic message that is being given to us. And uh, that is one of the main reasons that I wanted to, to do this. So I wanted to take the opportunity uh, in the next few weeks to focus our attention on the feasts or the festivals of Israel, and especially the last three, which we'll get to soon enough because we're going to take one each week. Uh, so it's going to take us just a few a few weeks to, to go through them. But we're going to concentrate on the last three because the last three feasts, which are called the fall feasts of Israel, all pertain to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. It pertains to the rapture of the church. It pertains to the uh, uh, seven years of tribulation. And it pertains to the second coming of the Lord after the seven years of tribulation is completed. So we're going to be looking at that now in the next few weeks. But all of the feasts, all of them have prophetic implications. So we want to uh, remember that as we go through this text. Now we're going to look at the first four verses of Leviticus uh, this evening as kind of a... um, kind of a, a, a way to get into our study tonight. Uh, so let's look at Leviticus 23, verses 1 through 4. It says, And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, Concerning the feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, even these are my feasts. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of rest, a holy convocation, you shall do no work therein. It is the Sabbath of the Lord in all your dwellings. These are the feasts of the Lord, even holy convocations, which you shall proclaim in their seasons. And so we're about to embark on what I consider to be one of the most fascinating and captivating studies in the scriptures. And that is the seven festivals or the seven feasts of Israel. In Leviticus 23, the Lord appointed seven annual feasts for the children of Israel to celebrate as holy days or holidays. Now you want to know where you get the word holiday. comes from really the two words holy days. 
But uh, that's what they really are to the children of Israel. They are holy days unto the Lord. We will see that as we look at the language of the text as we get into this, uh, into this chapter. But what will make this particular study so exciting is that these feasts not only focus on agricultural and historical calendar events, but symbolically prophetic in nature, especially as they point, as I said earlier, to the person and work of Jesus Christ. I want you to take, for example, a a statement that is made by the Apostle Paul uh, in regards to appointed days. Turn in the New Testament to Colossians chapter 2 and verses 16 and 17. Colossians chapter 2 verses 16 and 17. For here Paul says, Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of a holy day. And this is what he's dealing with. In respect to the feasts. So Paul is very clear that he's dealing with these feasts that were appointed unto Israel. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or drink or in respect of a holy day or of the new moon. Uh, We're not going to talk about the new moon a lot today, but we will get into that in in, in, in the studies that we're going to be doing uh, about the new year, which is uh, uh, related to the Feast of Trumpets which is actually also Rosh Hashanah, which is the new year. Uh, We'll talk about that. Uh, Or of the Sabbath days, literally of the Sabbath. And if you notice in our text, verse 3 talked about the Sabbath, and then again the feast. And I'm going to touch on that at the end of the study. Verse 17 now, Paul lets us know what's happening here about these feasts, what these holy days or these feasts are all about. He says, which are a shadow of things to come. So if you go back to verse 16, it says, Don't let any man judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of a holiday holiday or new moon or Sabbath. For those things, the Sabbath, the new moon, the holy day, are a shadow of things to come. But the body is of Christ. The body or the substance. The substance belongs to Christ. So all of those things that he mentions will point eventually to the substance, which is Christ. The holy days will point to Christ. The new moon will point to Christ. And, of course, the Sabbath will point to Christ. So Paul refers then to the Jewish feasts or festivals as merely a shadow of things to come. The substance of them being found in Yeshua, Jesus the Messiah. In other words, the feasts were prophetic types. The feasts were prophetic types or symbols that pointed to the Messiah and which would be fulfilled in Him. Now I'm gonna, I'm gonna just jump ahead really quickly here. The first three festivals, uh, the first three feasts or festivals have already been fulfilled by Jesus. The feast of Passover, unleavened bread, and first fruits. Those have already been fulfilled. This is, I'm just giving you an idea here how they pointed to Christ. Passover pointed to the Passover lamb. Paul says in 1 Corinthians that he's our Passover. That Jesus is our Passover. The unleavened bread speaks of, you know, the, 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 the sin issue that we have to be without sin and pure. Jesus, the sinless lamb, went to the cross. 
and died on our behalf because of sin. And then the first fruits, very quickly, resurrection. I am going to come back to that. But, but that's the, the, the point I'm trying to make is that these all point to Jesus. Every one of the feasts point to Jesus. And by the way, the, the fourth uh, feast itself, uh, which is uh, Pentecost or Shavuot or, or Harvest, uh, is, uh, it was fulfilled by the church. In other words, the believers, both Jew and Gentile. Well, we'll get to that. Okay. I'm getting ahead of myself. I, I get too excited about these things. So anyway, the feasts themselves were a part of the Mosaic Law. Of course, Leviticus is in the midst of the five books of Moses. Therefore, it deals with the Levitical Law or the Mosaic Law that was given by God to the children of Israel through Moses to celebrate over a seven-month period of time. Now again, you're going to hear the word seven a lot. Over a seven-month period of time, these festivals will take place. And, and again, the, word, the number seven is, is, is quite significant. And we'll talk more as we go along. But uh, <clears throat> there this, uh, the seven will be celebrated in a seven-month period of time, beginning in spring and continuing through fall. For example, Exodus 12, that details the first Passover feast. Uh, Exodus 23, verses 14 through 17. Let's look at that. <clears throat> These are all things that are coming out of the Torah, the first five books of Moses, and that the Lord was already establishing, you see, a law of these uh, celebrations of festivals. Uh, Exodus 23, verse 14. Three times thou shalt keep a feast unto me in the year. The three uh, spring feasts were agricultural feasts, those, those would be all celebrated and they would be kind of considered as one feast and they had, the, the men had to go to Jerusalem, you know, to, to celebrate that feast. And then Pentecost was the other one, that was the second, and then the other three uh, bunched together, trumpets and uh, atonement and, um, and tabernacles, that was the third time they had to go to Jerusalem. So this is what it says. Three times thou shalt keep a feast unto me in the year. But that was all within seven months. Thou shalt keep the feast of unleavened bread. Thou shalt eat unleavened bread seven days as I commanded thee in the time appointed of the month of Aviv. We'll talk about the months later. Uh, for in it thou camest out from Egypt and none shall appear before me uh, empty. And the feast of harvest, the first fruits of thy labors, which thou hast sown in the field, and the feast of ingathering, which is in the end of the year, when thou hast gathered in thy labors uh, out of the field. As a matter of fact, those are the three I just mentioned to you. The first one was actually called unleavened bread, but that, that uh, involved pa- Passover as well as first fruits. But it was called unleavened bread, the three, together. So then the other one was called the uh, harvest. Notice the feast of harvest. That's Pentecost. And then the other three linked together as, as called the Feast of Ingathering. That is called Tabernacles as well. Uh, so, which is in the end of the year, which, uh, when they gathered in the labors of the field. Three times in the year, all thy males shall appear before the Lord God. So that's a very clear statement, a clear, uh, a very clear, uh, commandment of God that, uh, those three festivals or those groups of festivals were to be celebrated, uh, uh, by the men together. And of course, eventually, of course, we know that they would be, once they have the temple in Jerusalem, that they would go to Jerusalem to celebrate these 
uh, feast. So then, of course, there's Exodus 34 as well. You might write that down and look it up. Uh, it mentions the feasts that need to be celebrated. And Leviticus 23, of course, which is where we started our study of the, fe- uh, the feasts. Uh, there's also Numbers 28 and 29 and Deuteronomy 16. All of these mention the feasts that need to be celebrated. So, as I said, the feasts themselves fall into three clusters. The first three feasts, Passover, Unleavened Bread, and first fruits, take place in rapid succession in the spring of the year over a period of eight days. Three, three feasts over the period of eight days. Now, here they, in that text I read in, in, in Exodus, they were called Unleavened Bread. But late, late, later, they would be collectively known as Passover. Passover. The fourth feast, harvest, occurs 50 days later. At the beginning of the summer. By the time of the New Testament, the feast would come to be known as Pentecost. A word meaning 50. Pent or penta is, is, is the, the word for 50 since harvest began 50 days after the previous feasts. And then the last three feasts, trumpets, atonement, which is Yom Kippur, and tabernacles, took place over a period of 21 days in the fall of the year. They came to be known collectively as tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles is also called the Feast of Booths, or of the ingathering, as we saw in our text in Exodus. So let's look first of all at the feasts in general. Uh, to understand their timing within the calendar year. And realize that we are going to deal with a different kind of calendar, calendar than we are normally used to using. And I'll talk about that later as well. First of all, let's consider the months and the dates of each feast. The first feast is called Passover. In the Hebrew it is Pesach, and it is in the month of Nisan, 1415, the days, those are the days. Nisan 14 and 15. And of course the, the, the feast itself would begin at sundown, so that's why 14 and 15, it would carry on into the next day. The second feast, immediately following Passover, was the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The, uh, the Hebrew for unleavened bread is Chag Hamatzot. Chag Hamatzot. Uh, we're not going to have Hebrew class yet. But um, if we were, what word stands out in, in Hamatzot? Matzah. How many of you know what matzah is? Matzah is unleavened bread. Looks like a big cracker. But there's no leaven in it, so it doesn't rise. It's, it's flat, a flat bread. So, Chag Hamatzot. Uh, then a few days right after uh, Passover, uh, it's uh, Nisan 15 through to the 22nd. And then comes first fruits. Yom Habikurim. Yom Habikurim is how it is pronounced. Yom means day, Habikurim, first fruits. And then the next two days, or the days within unleavened bread, the 16 and the 17. When we study them individually, we'll see the importance of the dates and when the dates are. Then comes Pentecost, or harvest. 
But the real name is in Hebrew Shavuot. Shavuot. And it would take place then 50 days later in another month, the month of Sivan, 6 and 7. And then there would come this long period of no feasts. Well, not that long. But it would uh, take take a few months anyway before you get to the next feast, which is the Feast of Trumpets. Yom Teruah. Yom Teruah. And when we look at the, the word Teruah, we are dealing with something that has to do with an awakening. And this is one of the most significant of feasts that deal with the, the end times, that deal with the, the coming of the Lord for His church. And uh, the trumpet is significant. I'll talk a little bit more about it in a moment. But that would be on Tishri 1. And what's interesting about that, we won't talk about it today, because when we get there, you'll realize that no one knows the day or the hour. I mean, the month is, is uh, set in, in the calendar, but it has to be announced by two witnesses. And again, that has to do with the new moon, and that's where this is very significant prophetically. So the trumpets or Rosh Hashanah, we'll talk about that in a moment. And then the Day of Atonement is 10 days later. Uh, that is Yom Kippur, the day of, of uh, uh, really meditation on, on uh, you know, sin and, and, and dealing with sin and judgment. And then um, that is in Tishri 10. And then lastly, Tabernacles, Sukkot in Tishri 15 through the 22nd. And so I'm, I, I just got to remember not to get ahead of myself. I got, it, I got it all lined up here, so I'll come back to those. The question is, of course, when do these feasts happen? When do they happen? One thing we have to keep in mind is that God's calendar is based on the phases of the moon. God's calendar is based on the phases of the moon. Each month in a lunar calendar begins with a new moon. Pesach or Passover falls on the first full moon of spring. The first three feasts, Pesach, unleavened bread, and first fruits fall then in our calendar in March and April. March and or March or April. The fourth feast, Shavuot, which is harvest or Pentecost, marks the summer harvest. And that occurs in late May or early June. Late May or early June. The last three feasts, trumpets, Yom Kippur and Sukkot or tabernacles, take place in September and October. September and or October. All of the feasts were related to the spiritual life of the people. All of the feasts were related to the spiritual life of the people. It wasn't as if the Lord was saying, look, I'm going to put you through a lot, so I'm going to just have a, a few feast days for you to kind of take a break and not do anything. Just, you know, you just kind of rest it all off, you know. No, no, no. They, they're, 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 spiritual, they're spiritual feasts. Holy convocation. See, these words are quite important that we remember why he calls them holy convocations. 
holy gatherings, as it were. Passover served. And, and again, I'm just generally touching on these things so you'll understand. But Passover occurred as a reminder that there is no atonement for sin apart from the shedding of blood. There is no atonement for sin apart from the shedding of blood. Just think of the first Passover in Egypt, where God commanded the people to take a, a, a lamb of the first year and to, you know, to go ahead and kill that lamb and, and then drain over it, all, all of its blood. And then, of course, serve the lamb, you know, to prepare the lamb as, as a meal. But then you would take the blood, and the blood was to be placed on the doorposts and the lintels of the home, so that when the Lord's Passover would come, if the blood was applied to the houses, then that Passover would go over, wouldn't touch and kill anyone within that house. This was judgment. See, consider judgment here. The, the celebration comes in that you're thankful that you're in the house that's got the blood on it. So blood was quite important. Unleavened bread was a reminder of God's call on their lives to be a people set apart to holiness. There again, they didn't have time when they were in Egypt getting ready to get out of Egypt to go back to the, or to go to the promised land. They said, when you make this bread, don't put any leaven in it because, you know, it's, you know, you've got to eat and rot. <clears throat> you can't wait for the, you know, wait for the, lo the loaf to rise. But there's significance, spiritual significance in that. Because leaven was a symbol of sin. And so the people were to be unleavened, that is, holy, before the nations as a witness of the Lord God of Israel. Now the Feast of First Fruits was, was a call to consider their priorities and to make certain they were putting God first in their lives. Putting God first in their lives. Pentecost or harvest was to be a reminder that God is the source of all blessings. God is the source of all blessings. The solemn assembly known as the Day of Trumpets, which included, by the way, Rosh Hashanah, new, the New Year, and that would be the civil New Year, not, not the, uh, the religious New Year. But Rosh Hashanah uh, or Trumpets was a reminder of the need for constant, ongoing repentance laying things down before the Lord when the call would come go to the go to the gate of the meeting go to the temple go to the tabernacle and there we had you had to be clean the day of atonement was was also a solemn day of rest and introspection and then tabernacles in sharp contrast to trumpets and atonement was the joyous celebration of God's faithfulness it was the joyous celebration. And, by the way, both Jew and Gentile could celebrate tabernacles. And again, we'll talk about that when we get to the last feast. So, again, the first six feasts are related to man's sin and his struggle to exist. I want, I want that thought to get, you know, to sink in. That the first six feasts are related to man's sin and struggle to exist. Passover. 
was about sin. Unleavened bread. It was about being clean from sin. <laughs> First fruits. It was about rising anew and afresh. No longer of the old. The harvest gathered together as, as the supply from God. But also still needing to be right and clean. Trumpets. You know, again, this, this, this call to assemble before a holy God. Atonement to consider the life of sin we have to put aside. But then that leaves tabernacles. The last feast of tabernacles is related to rest. It is related to rest. It is the most joyous feast of the year. It, it, it looks to the past. Tabernacles looks to the past in celebration of God's faithfulness in the wilderness. It looks to the present in celebration of the completion of the hard labor of the agricultural cycle. And it looks to the future in celebration of God's promise to return to this earth and provide the world with rest in the form of peace, righteousness, and justice. Well, when is that going to take place? Because there's not much peace today. There's not a lot of righteousness and there's not a lot of justice. So when will that come? What does tabernacles represent but the coming, the coming of the Mashiach, the Messiah, the Messiah of Israel, the promised Messiah. You see, what the Jewish people fail to see and realize is that all of the feasts were also symbolic types. All of the feasts were symbolic types. In other words, they were prophetic in nature, each one pointing in some way to some aspect of the life and work of the promised Messiah. Passover. Once again, and I know I may be repeating myself, but repetition is one of our better teachers. <laughs> so, Passover pointed... Now all of these point, now, so I'm going to use the word point quite a bit here. Passover pointed to Messiah as the Passover lamb whose blood would be shed for sin. Theirs and ours. Not just for the Jews, but ours as well. Jesus was crucified on the day of the preparation of the Passover. And we'll talk about this more next time. Jesus was crucified on the day of the preparation for the Passover at the very time, at the very time that the lambs were being slaughtered for the Passover meal that evening. At the very time. Unleavened bread pointed to Messiah's sinless life, making him the perfect sacrifice for our sins. Jesus' body, by the way, was in the grave during the first days of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And we're going to look at that. We're going to look at the time frame that Jesus 
body was in the grave during the first days of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, like a kernel of wheat planted and waiting to burst forth as the bread of life. And then first fruits. First fruits pointed to Messiah's resurrection as the first fruits of the righteous. Jesus was resurrected on this very day. Jesus rose again on the day of first fruits. And again, we will look and see that through the scriptures. Which is why the Apostle Paul refers to him in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 20. Notice what he says. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. Now we know why it says that in 1 Corinthians 5. He was the first fruits of them that slept, being of course of them that were dead, and, and he, he arose first, you know. For those who were dead in, 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 their, in their faith in God, he was the first fruits of them that slept. The first fruits. He rose on first fruits. And then comes Pentecost or Shavuot pointing to the great harvest of souls both Jew and Gentile that would come into the kingdom of God during the church age the church was actually established on this day when the Messiah poured out the Holy Spirit and 3,000 souls responded to Peter's first proclamation of the gospel read Acts chapter 2 But on that day of Pentecost, on the day of harvest, on the day of Shavuot, when Peter went to the temple and began to preach the gospel, 3,000 souls responded to Peter's first proclamation. And by the way, the interval between Shavuot and trumpets, as I mentioned earlier, points to the current church age. When will that end, you see? When does the church age end before the next feast, which is trumpets? When the trumpet blows, that's when it ends, right? But when do we know? What does the scripture say? We don't know the day or the hour yet. But we know that it's going to happen. And by the way, it's going to happen very soon. So we're still in the church age, and there's still the day of grace. There's still the time for people to come to the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, and they can come to salvation in Christ. The time is still available and he's still available. But when that day comes, the trumpet sounds and things are going to change. That interval between Shavuot and trumpets points to the current church age, a period of time that was kept a mystery. Listen carefully. We're going to talk about that mystery when we get to the, to the uh, Feast of Trumpets. But it was a mystery to the Hebrew prophets even in the Old Testament times. In fact, listen to what Paul says in Romans 16. Because in verses 25 and 26, he kind of lets us know, you know, that, that there was this mystery that wasn't known until now. It says, Now to him that is of power to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery which was kept secret since the world began but now is made manifest and by the scriptures of the prophets 
according to the commandment of the everlasting God made known to all nations for the obedience of faith. And what he's dealing with here is the, the very fact that now we have the church and now we have all these believers that at one time was, was, was a mystery to the prophets because the prophets would say, well, you know, all of that's supposed to take place toward the end. But what about this center time, you know, when the Messiah would come? You know, they thought the Messiah coming the first time was the coming of, of the Lord to establish his kingdom forever and ever. But Jesus had to first come to do what? He had to come to die. The suffering servant of Isaiah 53 had to be fulfilled before he comes again to set up that kingdom where not only Jews but Gentiles as well would be in the kingdom. And how often did Jesus say that he came first to the Jew? And the apostles would say that about, about Jesus as well. John says he came unto his own, and his own did not receive him. Paul talks about Jesus, you know, the, about, uh, the, you know, that he's not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, uh, for he is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first, he said. To the Jew first, and also to the Gentile. When Jesus was confronted at one time by some Gentile people, uh, he said, I, I, he says, wait a minute. And, and he, was he, wasn't, he was establishing to his disciples this understanding was, I have come to seek the lost sheep of Israel. And yet he still, through the persistence of those who came to him by faith, answered their prayer. But he came first, he said. I've come to seek and to save, or to come to seek the lost of the house of Israel. He was making that clear to his disciples. Not so much to the lady who came, to the woman who came to him seeking a, a, a blessing, a, a healing and all. You see. So we, we have to understand this, this mystery is not a mystery anymore. It's been revealed. These feasts, the feast of Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, and even of the harvest, Shavuot, they have been fulfilled. They have been fulfilled by Jesus. And the church. But as we look at the last three, these are yet to be fulfilled prophetically. They are yet to be fulfilled. Let's look at trumpets. Well, let's not look up there. Look in your Bibles in just a moment. But the Feast of Trumpets, which is called Rosh Hashanah today, points to the rapture of the church. I'm going to say it now, but I'm going to really explain it when we get to that, that passage. Hopefully the rapture happens before. Then you, then you get, you know, what, what do you call it? Uh, uh, field experience, you see. I won't have to teach it to you, you'll just go. But it points to the rapture of the church when the Messiah will appear in the heavens as a bridegroom coming for his bride, the church, which is always, by the way, always associated in Scripture with a blowing of a loud trumpet 
1 Thessalonians 4, verses 16 and 17. For the Lord Himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God. I think I mentioned last week, this isn't the same trump running for president. Uh, he's pretty loud, but the trump of God is louder. Okay? And the dead in Christ shall rise first, and then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. What a blessing that is. You read it and you think, man, by the way, the next verse, it tells us, therefore comfort one another with these words. We need to comfort people with the fact that Jesus is coming for his church. And a lot of people out there just, you know, they, they, they rag on people who believe in the, in the, in the rapture of the church. They kind, of, kind of even call us heretics to believe. We just read it. How can we be heretical if we read it? You're more heretical if you don't believe it. I'm telling you that right now. But we'll get into it when we, when we get there. By the way, in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 and 52, Paul said, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, which means to die, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. You know, if there's a last trump, there has to be a first trump too. Right? Alright, so we'll talk about that when we deal with the trumpets. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. That's trumpets. And we'll talk about that. Soon enough, Yom Kippur points to the day of the second coming of Jesus Christ when he will return to the earth. Now, that will be the day of atonement for the Jewish remnant when they, looked, when they look upon him whom they have pierced. And then they repent of their sins and receive him as their Mashiach, as their Messiah. But prophetically, it can be connected with the day of the Lord, the seven years of tribulation. Listen to the words of Zechariah. I know most of you are familiar with this, but listen to what he says. He says in, in, in verse 9 of chapter 12 of Zechariah, And it shall come to pass in that day. Now, that little phrase, in that day, usually speaks of the day of the Lord. It is the day of the Lord. We have always said the day of the Lord is not a day, but it is a period of time. It is, we call it the, the time of Jacob's trouble. We also call it uh, the, the tribulation period, the seven years that we saw back in uh, Daniel chapter 9, verse, verses 24 to 27. Uh, but there it's, it speaks of those, that seven year period of time. Uh, it's a time of darkness. It's a time of judgment. It's a time of God's wrath. It's not a good time. So it says, and it shall come to pass in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And by the way, if you, if you listen to the news and you watch what's going on in the world, there are people that really want to get in, you know, down to Jerusalem and, and divide up the land because God says, you know, it's my land, you don't divide it, and he'll get on you if you do or try. And, you know, this is where he, he's going to set up his kingdom. So anybody wanting to destroy it or wanting to come in, uh, to, to war against it, they're in trouble because God will then take action. So it says, It shall come to pass in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem, and I will pour upon the house of David. 
Now we know who that is. Those are the Jewish people. I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications. So far they have been going through, at least prophetically, they will be going through a time of great judgment because of their own sins, because of their own rebellion and because of their own disobedience to God. That's why they're still going through this time of of chastisement. So the spirit of the grace and supplications, it says, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced. Who's speaking? Mashiach, Messiah. They shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. This is the language of the Day of Atonement. This is the language of a heart that weeps because of sin. And what greater sin than to, have, than to see Messiah with your own eyes and realize it's Jesus. It's Jesus. Paul in Romans 11 verses 25 through 27 says, For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness is in part is, is happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. Until the fullness, when, when, you know, when, when all of that about the Gentiles is completed, blindness has been in part uh, happened to Israel until that time, and so all Israel shall be saved. As it is written, there shall come out of Sion the deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. The whole reason for the Day of Atonement is to point to that event that is going to bring Israel through the fires of tribulation purified and right before their God. And then Tabernacles, Sukkot, points to the Lord's promise that He will once again tabernacle or dwell and abide with His people when He returns to reign over all the world from Jerusalem. Where will His feet land, the Scriptures tell us? On the Mount of Olives. Well, has anybody been to the Mount of Olives? A few of you have. Me too. And we, we look at it, we say, well, Jesus is going to put his feet right here. Right here. Because the scripture says it. You can't spiritualize that. I mean, there's, there's still a Mount of Olives. And he's still coming. And by the way, there's a, there's, there's a city, an old city, where there's a gate on, on the eastern wall that's bricked in right now, but... Jesus is going to go through that gate and break it all down. The valley that is below him, which we see all the time there, that, that, that valley is going to split in two and he's going to go right there through, through those gates with his saints and set up his, 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 uh, his kingdom. These are the things that, you know, we have to say, we believe by faith because God said it's going to happen. Micah 4 verse 2 says, And many nations shall come and say, Come, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths, for the law shall go forth of Zion and the word 
of the Lord from Jerusalem. That's what's going to happen when Jesus establishes his kingdom. All right, so getting back to Leviticus 23, we need to concern ourselves now with certain words and understand about calendars and dates because this will be very important for us in the course of our study. Well, first of all, let's, let's look at the words for feast and convocation because those are, those are important words for us to have when we get back into our study next time. Leviticus chapter 23 verse 2 says, Speak unto the children of Israel and say unto them concerning the feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, even these are my feasts. Two words, feasts and convocations. The first word is feasts. It is the Hebrew word moed. I even, I even had a program that put the, the Hebrew there. Uh, you read the, the Hebrew from right to left, not left to right. So, uh, moed, moed is the word for feasts, and it literally means an appointment, a fixed time or season. So it is a time that is set. It doesn't move around. Now, what's interesting is that on our calendar, it moves around, but it doesn't move around in the Jewish calendar. So we're, we're going to talk about that in just a moment. And then there is uh, the next word is convocations or convocation. It is the word mikra, mikra. If you notice that first uh, letter on the right of, of the Hebrew word, that's what's normally the M sounding word. Uh, you'll see it's the same here in feast, but you'll notice a little difference on uh, the bottom of it. There's a little dot. Uh, you know it because of the, of the I, mi, mikra. The other one is mo. Moed, and the next word is, or the next letter looks like an I. That's actually a no. Wow, I really confused you now. Okay, mikra, an assembly or a gathering, an assembly or a gathering. So these are not suggestions. These are commands to the children of Israel. But there's a tremendous difference between our normal everyday calendar and the calendar that the Lord gave to His people, the one by which all of the scriptures uh, revolve around. So when you study any chart, when you study any chart of the Jewish feasts, you realize they do not fall on specific or specified dates according to the Gregorian calendar. The Gregorian calendar is the one we follow. January, February, March, April, May, June, July, August, September, October, November, December. That's That's the... Uh, Gregorian calendar. The names actually came from the Julian calendar. Uh, 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 it was a calendar that came earlier on from Julius Caesar. So it was called the Julian calendar. And uh, he wanted uh, you know, to kind of establish a, a calendar based upon the sun, uh, the solar calendar. That's where we got the names of uh, you know, January, Janus, you know, one of the gods of, of, uh, of the Romans and, uh, and so on uh, and so forth, you know. Uh, August, uh, Augustus, you know, another Caesar, uh, July, Julius, you know, and so on. Uh, but that's, they kept the names, but, uh, but now in the Greg Gregorian calendar, which was adopted in 1582, that came in during the reign of Pope Gregory the 13th. Pope Gregory the 13th. The Gregorian calendar is a solar calendar related to the Earth's revolution around the sun. The Jews, in contrast, used a modified lunar calendar, or what can be called a lunar-solar calendar. A year on the Gregorian calendar runs 365 days, we all are familiar with that, 
But since it takes approximately 365 days for the earth to make it complete, and I say approximately 365 days for the earth to make a complete circle around the sun, an extra day is added in February every four years, providing a leap year of 366 days. We learned that in school about our own calendar. But the Jewish calendar is based upon the movement of the moon around the earth. A full circle takes about 29 days. I wish it was just simple. You know, I wish it was just 30 days. Because when, you, when it comes right down to it, the, the Jewish calendar, the, the, the basic Jewish calendar is 360 days based on 30 days uh, each month. But see, it does, it's not that simple because of the way the earth and the, the, and the moon and all of that. Uh, so the full circle takes about 29 days. And so 12 of these lunar months add up to 354 days in a year. So a solar year is 11 days longer than a lunar year. And if Jews followed a strict lunar calendar, the feast would migrate around the calendar. Uh, but, uh, but they wouldn't be able to tolerate that since three of the feasts are directly related to the agricultural cycle. The first ones, Passover and, and uh, uh, unleavened bread and first fruits. And then, of course, harvest. Therefore, a method was devised to modify their lunar calendar to line up with the solar calendar. And I have to tell you, it's all very complicated because an extra month of 29 days is added and thank the Lord, He's got it all worked out with His people. So I'm not going to explain anymore. And don't forget that the Gregorian day begins at midnight, right? The next day begins midnight, 12 a.m. And it runs until the next midnight. According to Scripture... The Jewish day begins at sundown and runs until the next sundown. Whew. Okay, that's it. No more about that. Uh, well, we will talk a little bit about it when we get to the, you know, the, the other uh, feasts. One last thing. The Sabbath. The Sabbath is mentioned in verse 3. Why is it mentioned? Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work therein. It is the Sabbath of the Lord in all your dwellings. A very interesting thing. That the feasts of Israel have to be celebrated in Jerusalem. The Sabbath can be celebrated anywhere. The the Sabbath can be celebrated anywhere. Let's keep that in mind. But it wasn't an annual feast. But it was an important day for the Jewish people. It was to remind them of the days of creation and God resting or ceasing from labor on the seventh day. The people were to look back and they were to look ahead to rest. That's what the Sabbath was, to look back on what God had done and that he rested and therefore they needed to rest on the seventh day. They were to look ahead. Even as Joshua brought them into the land, that rest was never realized by occupying the land. They never really had the true rest that God wanted them to have. That true rest is only to be realized in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So, the Sabbath is a reminder that God establishes these days for a reason. And again, if you know 
that the Sabbath is the seventh day. The seventh day. There's the number seven again. And the importance of that in our understanding the feast as, the, as we will see in just the next few, the next few weeks. But I want to kind of give you a little teaser here for our prophetic study in this because I want you to realize the kind of rest that God wants His people to truly have and when they are to have it. Turn to Hebrews, and we're going to close with this. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 8 through 11. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 8 through 11. Now, when you look at the passage there in, in Hebrews chapter 4, and I'm going to turn there so that I can fill in the context for you. But as we're looking at chapter 4, he's been speaking of a certain place of the seventh day of this, on this wise, and God did rest the seventh day from all his works, that's verse 4, and in this place again, if they shall enter into my rest, seeing therefore remaineth as some must enter therein, uh, and they to whom it was first preached entered not in because of unbelief. You know, speaking of those that were not entering into the promised land because they did not believe. Uh, we know that uh, the generation that uh, went through the 40 years of, of the uh, of the wilderness experience, the majority of them did not enter into rest. Of all of them, only two went in, Joshua and Caleb. So, again, he limiteth a certain day, saying in David, today, after so long a time, as it is said, today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your heart. So, don't harden your hearts to them, believe. For if Jesus, and that's where we are here, for if Jesus had given them rest... Then would he not afterwards have spoken of another day. There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. Now, here in verse 9, I've underlined that word rest. Verse 9 is a different word in, the, in, the, in Greek than of the rest that you see in verses 7 and, uh, I should say verses 8 and 10 and 11. A different word. All of a sudden he says here in verse 9, there remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. Again, a different word than the rest of entering into the promised land. For he that has entered into his rest, he, has, he also has ceased from his works, his own works as God did from his. Let us labor therefore to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. And, and I bring this up to you because that word in verse 9, the rest to the people of God, completely a different word than the word for rest, entering into the rest of the promised land. It is the word sabbatismos. Sabbatismos. And the root word is the word sabbaton. In the Greek, that is the word for Sabbath rest. A Sabbath rest. And the 
indication here and the implication is of a rest that is not just a day of rest, but a seven year period of rest. That's why I said this is a teaser. I'm just teasing you with this because we're going to come back and study it when we come back to trumpets. But it's a Sabbath rest, not just any rest, but a Sabbath rest to the people of God. This is, in fact, a verse of Scripture speaking of the rest of the church through the time of the tribulation. Again, just teasing you because I only have one minute left. We can't go into it. Which means you have to come back. I certainly hope you do. So we begin the introduction then to the Feast of Israel. And we will be very specific in the next few weeks over the same, over the, I should say, the, uh, the feast that we've already mentioned. But we go from general now to specific. Specific things that we need to see about them and the prophetic uh, implications of them all. Very well. I guess the question has to be then, have you entered into his rest? And the rest that I want you to be sure that you are in is the rest that comes from you responding to the invitation of Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. When Jesus said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. No matter what the world is doing, no matter what we see happening, this, this is a crazy, chaotic world today. And it's getting crazier by the minute. I mean, it's getting nuts. You just, you, you spend an hour watching the news in the morning and you think, man, the inmates are running the asylum. Honestly. As believers, all we can say is, praise the Lord. Jesus said, I'm coming quickly, so be ready. And he told us, things are going to be weird when he comes. So, hey, they're pretty weird now. I say, be ready. Be ready. Love the Lord Jesus Christ with all your heart. Serve him. Proclaim him. Obey him. And just be rejoicing in Him. What else can we do? You know that the, really the scriptures, the scriptures are clear. He did not call the church to change the world. Jesus said, "When when 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 it's time for me to come, man, this world is going to be all messed up." Read Matthew twenty-four and Mark thirteen and Luke twenty-one. Read those three chapters tonight. And he's talking about things that we're seeing happening here today. So hopefully before we get to the, the study in trumpets, you know, the trumpet will sound. But if not, then we'll get to learn what it's about. All right? All right, let's all stand because it's, it's time for us to go.
But let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for giving us this uh, time to start this study in, in, the, in the feasts. Lord, we want to rightly divide your word at all times. We want to be right about what your word teaches us. And we want to stand upon your truth because there is no other truth that will matter like your truth matters already. For we believe, Lord God, that your word is so true that we see the things that you prophesied thousands of years ago happening today. And in some cases, very, very distinctly. And it's time for that to stir our hearts to the reliability of your word. But it is something that we ourselves can stand upon, Lord God, without any, any question. And we thank you, Father, because you are faithful in everything you say and everything you do. And because of that, Lord, we want to honor you and bless you with our praises. We want to honor you and bless you with our worship and with our service. We want you, Lord, to be blessed. Lord, we don't have enough words to tell you how much we care and we love you and, and we're, we're overwhelmed, Lord, by you each and every day. So suffice it to say, Lord, that we will give you the best words we can in praise to you. And we thank you, Father, for this time. Let it stir our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. And amen. Amen, amen, amen. Well, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.